end of life doula work is a lot like trip sitting because you are there for harm reduction. You are there to support. We are all mm-hmm. just walking each other home. Mm-hmm. And what, what do we say when somebody's having a bad trip? You know, ahead of time, turn around and face it. Don't run. Mm-hmm. Turn around and face and say, what do you have to teach me? Mm-hmm. And if we could all kind of look at all of this with the same kind of awe-inspiring curiosity and open-mindedness, yes. mm-hmm. then we would, um, we would suffer a whole lot less. The amazing thing about the mushrooms is that they speak, they talk to you, they will answer questions, carry on conversations. Psilocybin just pulls up a chair on the porch and puts its feet up. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Psilocybin Says. I am your co-host, Eric Osborne. And I'm your co-host, Courtney Rose. And today we have a wonderful conversation for you. We interviewed Catherine Durkin. She is a death doula. Did you, do you know that's a thing? Because uh, don't run, don't run. I know <laughs> we start talking about death and people are like, oh God, got to get out of here. Yeah, stay, stay. It's going to curse me. She makes this conversation so approachable and um, I feel like it's going to be a really easy listen for you. Uh, if you haven't been talking about death much, well, Catherine gives some great tips in this episode on how we can talk about death. So that we can live a more fulfilled life, right? Yeah. Because if you keep pretending like that's not going to happen, then you might not really enjoy this one to the fullest. Also, I want you to be on the lookout for some really incredible stuff that's coming from Sanctuary. We're going to start incorporating death doula training into our minister programs. Uh, I've been working, as some of you know, with uh, terminal patients and psychedelics for several years, and it's been so impactful on my worldview and my understanding and the value of psychedelics. And it's going to be a really important part of sanctuary as we move forward in the future. So stay tuned for those uh, upcoming announcements. Yeah. I really love what Catherine said uh, in this interview that when people meet her and learn she's a death doula, they oftentimes think, wow, what a sad profession. Mm. And she, uh, says basically like, no, it's the opposite. It's so rewarding and fulfilling. And so, so was this conversation. So I sure hope you enjoy. If you're not watching on YouTube, you can check us out there, see all of our beautiful faces. Uh, And if you're there, comment below, let us know what you think. What's your experience around death? And if you're not on YouTube, please go to iTunes if you're listening there and leave a comment, leave a rating. We're getting more and it means a lot to us. It really helps to spread this show's message. Also, Spotify, you can give us some stars there. We got quite a few five stars on the the old iTunes Mm -hmm. and particularly Spotify. So it is really appreciated, you all, because we really want to help spread these conversations, which are not, you know, the things that we're talking about are not generally talked about in public psychedelic circles so trying to bring some of these topics that matter uh and that are a little fringe worthy uh into the public view so thanks so much your support goes a long way to making that happen we love you so much our listeners we love you thanks for listening all right hey Catherine, welcome to psilocybin says thank you so much for having me yeah it's so good to have you here Really looking forward to hearing more about your work. Oh, this is such a big topic right now in the psychedelic world. Um, and I, it needs more conversation around it, right? So uh, first of all, Catherine, just tell our audience a little bit about your work 
uh, with, is it Anitya? How do you pronounce it? Yeah, that's perfect. Anitya Doula Services. Um, Anitya, I named my practice Anitya because it's Sanskrit and it means impermanence. So my background is, um, you know, like any doula, I come from a varied background, um, mostly in advocacy work and political organizing. Um, and I'm also a longtime volunteer with hospice. So I had been trained and working with hospice for a while when I, you know, I think the pandemic rearranged a lot of people's priorities, um, changed a lot of people's lives in ways that they didn't expect. And I'm certainly one of them. Mm. So I, I decided I wanted to continue to advocate for people, but outside the political realm. And so one day I was at hospice, a friend of mine said, you know, you're already doing this work. Why don't you go back, get trained as an end of life doula and then open your own practice. So that's exactly what I did. Um, there are lots of ways to learn more about end-of-life work. You know, getting trained through hospice was just a great way for me to get introduced to that work. Um, but then when I really wanted to get trained specifically for end-of-life doula, I went back to school. I learned which programs were really the best for me, and I picked the University of Vermont. And so... Again, it was the pandemic. I didn't have to relocate. So I took the classes. I ended up opening my own practice in Tampa where I grew up, where I raised my children. I was part of the community. I had been not just an organizer. I had been a teacher at both the high school and college level. And I had also um, been a newspaper columnist for 10 years. So I didn't realize, you know, that had a lot to do with building up trust in the community, getting to know the place. And then um, so it was fairly easy to start my own practice and then relocated to Chicago this summer. <laughs> so I have been getting to know my new community and, you know, the welcome, it couldn't be more warm. So I'm thrilled with that. And then I brought in the psychedelic component. Just because, you know, it had been such a life-altering experience for me. And I had been reading about the studies at Johns Hopkins in different places. And so I wanted to make that available um, if my clients wanted it. I wanted to make myself available as a trip sitter. So through that, I got to know the psychedelic community, not just in Chicago or Florida, but around the country, around the world. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, this, this has been a really interesting journey. And I'm thrilled to be able to help support people at, you know, what is such an important time of, of their lives. And hopefully through all of this, reduce fears and anxiety so it can be a better experience for them. Mm -hmm. Mm. How how have you seen the psychedelic component impact the work that you've performed? Well, when I stop and think about it, you know, I'd never been afraid of death, not in any real way. I think that has a lot to do with the way I was raised. I was raised, um, my family's Irish Catholic. And the Irish have a very specific relationship with death. Um, <laughs> it is a part of life. Mm. And so I was at my first last rites when I was five. We surround the dying person with love and laughter and some tears and a few drinks. And <sighs> everybody really just um, participates. And then when my grandpa died, when other people have died, Again, you surround the body with love. You surround the, the mourners with love. And 
I grew up thinking that that was normal, very natural. Um, but when I was older, maybe about 22, I had a psychedelic experience with psilocybin. And whatever, you know, minor anxiety I might have had went away. Yes, this is mysterious. And yes, we don't know for sure what happens to us afterwards, but that's exciting. Mm. And I knew more than anything, it, it just seems so hokey to talk about, but to try to put into words, but the over, it felt like something was being revealed to me that love is what you'll feel. And mm. when you, the idea of your ego disappearing might seem frightening but when you experience that during a psychedelic experience you realize it's not frightening at all it's um awe-inspiring and joyful and so i brought that with me and uh, when i turned so that my first experience was about 22. um didn't really know a whole lot about set didn't know a whole lot about setting but it was an overwhelmingly beautiful experience, one of the more profound experiences of my life. And then when I turned 50, just about three years ago, I knew a little bit more, not just about life, but I knew a little bit more about set and setting. I knew, I looked at the world differently as a 50 year old than I did as a 22 year old. And so I had, a, I went to an ayahuasca retreat and again, it's nothing we don't already know, but to feel it, to feel that love is all that matters, that we are all connected, that there is nothing to fear from like from the from this journey, from your ego dissolving, from anything. Um, was uh, to feel that again as a fifty-year-old was just a wonderful way to bring in this new phase of life, really. And then the next night, you know, I had heard people say, you don't have to actually experience the psychedelic portion to have a life-altering experience. You can be around people who are. Mm. Trip sitters often come back and say they've, they've felt moved in very similar ways. Mm -hmm. And so the next night I didn't need any more of the medicine. I had gotten the experience that I believed I was meant to get the first night. So I was a trip sitter for the first time and they had plenty of volunteers. Um, so I could just kind of sit back and watch. And I did, I watched about 45 to 50 separate miracles, people making peace with their childhood abusers, people um, making peace with themselves. Um, lots of people were there to stay sober. They were there to treat medicine resistant depression and to witness that was as moving as the first night. So I just knew as I was entering this new realm in death work that people are scared. Um, people are afraid because we're not encouraged to talk about it because psychedelics are not legal, because uh, they don't have time to meditate, they're too worried or scared. There's a whole host of reasons why people are fearful. And so psychedelics is one, just one tool that medicine, true medicine that we can use for people who maybe have been served a diagnosis that they don't have the time to meditate. This can help them along um, and, and really get to the heart of what their fears are 
work through them, and then end life joyfully. So it, it just felt natural to include it as a part of my practice as well. Mm. <clears throat> I love hearing about your um, family's experience with the last rites tradition. Um, I mean, that's something for me personally, I have no family traditions around death. So I'm, I'm so, I have so much to learn about different ways in which different cultures uh, help us all as a community uh, like you mentioned, surrounding the person who's transitioning and then afterwards making it a community experience that is wholesome and does, it doesn't sound like it's just about, you know, sadness and um, grieving, but also a celebration uh, as well. And that's, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah my, it really is. My version of a Irish Catholic was much more dour around death. It was there was no joyfulness, no celebration. It was always very, you know, poor us left behind. Uh, and it was only when I went into Jamaica and started witnessing a culture that understood how to celebrate life through the experience of death, where my perspective started to shift. It's culturally, I'm not sure there's could be a much more valuable culture shift that would have you know such a broad impact on many aspects of our life as being able to accept death as a normal part of life yeah absolutely they we, I, when i was growing up i would often hear relatives say that a wake or a funeral is the same party just when it's awake, it's one less person than would be at the <laughs> at, at a wedding, mm -hmm. um, and so I think I think that it, there are lots of cultures, lots of faith traditions that really help people, um, and you don't have to be Irish to benefit from the wake experience. You don't have to, you know, I converted to Judaism as an adult and they have Shiva, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a great week-long mourning period for people after a loved one has died. You don't have to be Jewish to recognize that that week off where you tell stories and you don't work and you don't focus on anything other than mm -hmm. the space you're in right now. Um, can be beneficial for every culture. So I feel mm. like as a death doula, especially one that serves the broader community, not just people who were from an Irish Catholic background or from a Jewish background, but every kind of background, I feel like I have this, you know, in the back of my head, all these little ways that people can choose you know, what works for them and disregard the ones that don't. And that hopefully that makes for a better experience for everybody but i really do believe we can learn from other cultures and we should absolutely mm, yeah um I'm, I'm curious when do you find that you're usually called as a death doula uh for your services like at what point in this process of life and death gosh i feel like it's a lot of different parts that people get drawn to this or want to work with a death doula or death educator. Um, so when I was in Tampa, right, the place where I grew up and people knew me, I got a lot of calls from people who knew my columns and they wanted me to write their life story. So these are mm -hmm. people who are nowhere near a diagnosis. They're nowhere near the end of life. 
but they want to get the basis of their life story down hmm. so that it can be ready for any additions, you wow. know, in the next couple decades. So Those I got are prepared, a lot of that. prepared yeah. people. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. That's cool. Right. Um, but then other times, you know, and I hear from a lot of groups now in Chicago where I'm working so much as a death educator. Um, I am hearing from, you know, retirement communities, places that um, might be assisted living facilities or places that serve older folks, um, continuing education groups at different schools, colleges, universities, and also faith-based groups as well. But I'm also hearing from a lot of organizations that serve younger people. And Mm -hmm. I have found, and I'm talking about 30s, 40s, um, and those folks come with a different idea. Mostly they want to have a different relationship with death than their parents Mm. or grandparents. They want to reduce fears and anxieties now so that they not only have a great death in the future, but they have a better life because they're living with less fear. Mm. Mm. And then I also hear from a lot of people who want to be educated about death because they're caring for their parents or an older loved one. Um, Mm. And they wanna do it differently. They wanna really help. They wanna really show up for someone. And so they wanna do it in the best way possible. And then obviously I do hear from people who want just straight support. They want somebody to sit with them after they've received a diagnosis and they are trying to come to terms with what it means to get your affairs in order. They want to work on different ways to reduce their own fears. They want to help their family uh, with some support. And so I just feel like it's a, a across the, you know, different age groups and different phases of life and the dying process that I'm hearing from people. Mm. And how has the, or the, the clients that you would normally have been working with, are you getting more interest around the incorporation of psychedelics into their practice or their experience? So it's a little bit of both. Um, I have joined the Chicago Psychedelic Society Um, So I do try to seek out and find people who are receptive to this kind of Mm -hmm. information. Um, You know, Buddhists and psychedelics really are (laughs) in tune with the dying process. The idea of attachments and letting go um, more so than others, right? Mm. So I reach out and I want to be a part of that conversation early on. Uh, so we can all grow together. And when somebody gets that diagnosis or serious illness, they know that there's somebody here in town that speaks the same language that can support them in a way that benefits them. But then I hear from a lot of people who are older and scared. And, you know, they're not only scared of death, but they're scared of psychedelics. They've mm. been told for a very <laughs> long time, uh, you know, all the lies that we were raised with um, that. So not only are they afraid of death, but they're afraid of drugs in general. They, mm-hmm. I, and I have to do some educating around that. And then they're also afraid of anything that is illegal or seems to be, or might be. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as a doula, my work is not to guide. It's certainly not to go in and fix anything. I'm there strictly to support. Mm -hmm. And so when I do my presentations, when I'm educating either at groups or schools, um, I bring this up. 
and I plant a seed. And I Mm -hmm. let people know that, yes, um, you know, they're a little shocked that somebody who's either, you know, self-identifies as Jewish or, you know, looks so normal (laughs) um, (laughs) is is talking about this in such a frank and open way. But it's the same way I talk about death. And I think the fears around both are connected. Mm. And so let's talk about it. Let's normalize the conversation. And I tell people all the time, it's my belief, my hope that these are rescheduled in the next five years and that they are available and will be everywhere. Just like, you know, like cannabis is. Um, Mm. That's my hope because plant medicines are different than drugs and they can help people. There's no reason to die with fear. There's no reason to die with anxiety. So let's let's start talking about it more and more often. So that's what I'm bringing all over Chicago. Are you looking for a community that allows you to authentically express and explore what it means to be human? One that honors the divinity within you and all life? Then Sanctuary may be just the community you have been looking for. Sanctuary is a faith-based organization centered around the sacrament of sacred mushrooms for spiritual exploration and personal development. You are invited to become a member and commune with us. Join us for a Sunday Zoom service or a weekend sacred mushroom retreat in the beautiful Kentucky countryside. Visit P-S-A-N-C-T-U-A-R-Y.org to become a member and find more information. Uh, what's the what's the pulse like on this with other death doulas, like in the death doula community and psychedelics? Is this something that you find is being talked about or are you doing more of the initiating the conversation? Or? Well, you know, when I do bring it up, I get a lot of interest. Um, hmm. Death doulas are open minded, just comes mm-hmm. with the work, I think. Yeah. And we're also non-judgmental. And so, mm-hmm. you know, to explore these kinds of things, I think, yeah, we're, there's definitely an interest there. I mean, we're all reading the same literature. We're hearing about the same studies that are helping people with cancer, that are helping people with terminal illnesses. Um, you don't have to, you shouldn't have to wait until a diagnosis. So we mm-hmm. talk about this all the time. And I think that there's a lot of people who are open to it, but again, there's, they're scared. Mm-hmm. And so the, the way that I've done it is, you know, I talk about trip sitting in the name of harm reduction. I am working with, like if a client comes to me, they typically have a therapist that they are also working with. Um, and so I just kind of am comfortable with that kind of atmosphere. I understand this therapist is risking a lot because they believe in the healing powers of the medicine that they're using. And I am there for safety, um, making sure somebody's okay so that they can do a deep dive and they can explore and learn what it is they're supposed to learn. So there are some people who are just too scared to do that right now, um, but they're interested and they're they're watching to see what the laws do, how these things change, how the culture will shift, is shifting. Um, and I think we're going to have a lot more people on board once that rescheduling happens, hopefully in the next five to 10 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, we're, we're very helpful that organizations like Sanctuary are going to be able to expand access through the religious avenue that will even uh, yeah. more, more quickly break down some of these barriers. You know, it's, it's so much um, a problem of perception. And we were just on a board meeting talking about, you know, our community is 
uh, probably like, what did you say, 70% over 60? You know, we've got a Mm -hmm. lot of older members in our community. And that's been my experience overall in the retreats in Jamaica or our experience. You know, we saw a lot of people come into these uh, experiences later in life. Mm -hmm. And that has had an enormous impact on public perception. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's so painful to talk with somebody who's risking their license as a therapist or risking anything really to practice with plants in a sincere and intentional way. And so I do hope we can, we can help, um, all those people out there that are practicing uh, without protection of a legitimate faith-based organization yeah. uh, to get some more protection until things are <laughs> rescheduled and legal, mm-hmm. uh, which might, which will take some time. But yeah, I think that's real. The work you all are doing is so important, and really, um, you know, being just pioneers in this area and showing people what religion what a spiritual base can really look like when it's rooted in kindness and love Mm. and, uh, you know, unconditional positive regard for others. Um, I'm really excited about the good work you're doing to shine a a beautiful light on on religious Mm. and spiritual searching that maybe others don't. Um, And you can bring around people who want that kind of community and want that kind of um, love, but really don't find it in traditional religious areas. Oh, my goodness. If if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that already, you know, just two years in, the people who have said, you know, to be able to have a place where I can just be me and explore what it means to be me. We've got a woman in our community who's, in her seventies. And she, it's just incredible to see what that, like you said, that unconditional loving supporting community can do for someone who has had a lifetime of trauma. I mean, this individual has been on SSRIs for since she was, I want to say 18 years old. I mean, very long time on some of the most early experimental drugs. And, you know, at our last Wednesday circle, she was just saying how none of the medications helped. And even before the mushrooms, it was the community that helped her feel loved and able to just talk about her experience without judgment. Uh, So, yeah, bringing that into particularly into someone who is transitioning through this life uh, is is so powerful. So powerful. Mm -hmm. And this conversation around death. I mean, I, I know it's been challenging for me. Uh, so far in my life, up until the last probably handful of years to talk about death with people, because it is such a stigmatized conversation uh, for many reasons, religion, the dogma of religion coming into that and having a very specific answer (laughs) around death and, you know, the options available (laughs) for when you die. Uh, So it's been it's really refreshing to get to know people like yourself, uh, many people in our sanctuary community, people who are just willing to explore together, uh, together without any definite answers <laughs> about, you know, this is definitely exactly what it is, no questions asked. 
so I love that. I want to do more of that. I have, I have like infinite questions for you, <laughs> like so many around death and talking about death and with individuals and community um, and children. Like you mentioned, you're a mother. And um, lately, our son has been asking, who's, he's almost six, and he's been asking a lot more questions about death. And so I'm really curious uh, from your perspective as both a mother and a death educator, like when a child asks um, what happens when we die, like what is your, do you have like a (laughs) go-to answer around that? Oh, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Um, That would be terrific. Um, You know, yeah. And I get, I, get the hesitation, right? Because our children want to know things and we really want to be honest with them. Um, But we also want to be age appropriate. And so you walk this fine line between being as honest and open and, you know, um, just real with your child at the same time, not not scaring them, not giving them too much information. Mm -hmm. So, I find death is a lot like other subjects, whether we're talking about um, sexuality, whether we're talking about um, certain life choices, or you know, they might ask how how did Aunt Molly get pregnant? Um, <laughs> when they're asking at six, that's a very different conversation than mm-hmm. when they're asking at ten or eleven, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that's what I found. So my twin sons are twenty three now. And we're still having conversations mm-hmm. about all kinds of s- subjects that, you know, get different as they get older. So I think it's important for parents to listen to the actual question. What mm-hmm. are they asking specifically? Mm-hmm. And then give them as much information as possible, starting with planting seeds, just a little bit of information. And sometimes they'll say, okay, that's it. And they'll go off to another subject. They'll go off to play. Mm-hmm. But then they know, they know that they can come and they can ask you anything. And mm. that's the most important thing, to be open and honest and welcome any kinds of questions. And sometimes ask them what they think. They have a lot of ideas. Mm. Yeah. Um, I would encourage, I always encourage parents to work on their poker face. So <laughs> just remain as open and as pleasant as possible, even if they shock you, don't look shocked um, <laughs> so that they'll keep talking, keep thinking these things through. But yeah, I think, I think it's important, you know, and it depends. Are they asking about a specific loved one who has died or are they just asking in general, what do you think? And then mm-hmm. you can talk about the mystery, um, but the awe-inspiring mystery mm-hmm. of it. Not that it's scary, mm-hmm. not but awe-inspiring. And it's actually, you know, we can look at it like we would a trip. We don't know exactly what we're going to experience, but we're open to it. Mm. And um, and then just kind of let them lead the way with their questions. Yeah. Mm. It it's is tricky. so, ref- it's so <laughs> cool and refreshing and keeps us on our toes as people yeah. with, with kids. Um, because it is shocking. Sometimes it comes out of nowhere uh for for me or us uh when 
Theo is his name asks a question like, where, where is my body? Like, what do you mean? Like, hold on. I might leave my body Mm. and keep living, but then where's my body? And then he's been definitely continuing to ask questions, which is really cool because it's just not something that most adults will ask in conversation. (laughs) Hey, by the way, (laughs) what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, death? (laughs) Yeah, probably because we haven't been received well. Well, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Um, you're going to go to hell or maybe you're going to go to heaven. It's a crapshoot. Yeah. And no wonder we're frightened and scared to death and we don't want to think about it. And when it comes up, we're not prepared. And I think that, you know, in communities and organizations where people do talk about it, you know, I get this all the time from people. You know, I'll be at a social event or a gathering and someone will say, what do you do for a living? And I think to myself, well, here we go. (laughs) So I explain I'm a death doula, a death educator. And sometimes people are freaked out by that and kind of disappear. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Um, and then sometimes people are curious and they ask questions and they want to know more. Um, but w- when we start talking about it, it really opens up lots and lots of questions. And hopefully that can encourage people. The more we know about something, the less we fear it. Mm-hmm. And so if we can just talk more and be open more, then the generations that are coming up now Hopefully, they won't be so frightened, won't be so filled with anxiety, and definitely our kids' generation. I think that they're used to talking about things that are a little tender, Mm. sometimes a little uncomfortable, and that's okay, too. Um, You know, they're much more open than I think previous generations used to be. Mm. So, I'm really excited by that possibility and and what I'm seeing from all of us, just making a small difference in our own little circles that then spread out to all the bigger circles out there. I, I, it's, I think it's going to be a very different experience for dying people in the next 10 to 15 years than it has been previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. It's been really phenomenal to me how, you know, as coming into this through psychedelics and then the, the individuals like yourself self who have, who have come into psychedelics through the death doula and like we, we kind of both end up coming to the same place through different avenues. Um, and it's, I don't think that there's been anything that has transformed my experience as a psychedelic support person, like working with those who are terminal, um, you know, people who have, dealt with long-term trauma and abuse history and, and seeing that recovery, like you're talking about um, in your ayahuasca experience as a sitter is, is so humbling, but to combine that same kind of openness and healing and embracing of the mystery to someone who is going into the ultimate mystery. Yeah. It's just off the charts. Um, I just finished, well, not just finished, but recently a member of ours who was such an incredible individual. This this guy was one of the first black surgeons in Kentucky. Um, He, in the 80s, he was trying to convince, when he was a student at Johns Hopkins, he was trying to convince them to start studying psychedelics. 
he was going to ayahuasca retreats in Peru in the eighties. And hmm. he, uh, uh, was recently, you know, he was diagnosed terminal and he went down very quickly in about six months. And I had the incredible privilege of being there with him, uh, through a couple of doses, one, which was actually on his deathbed just a few days wow. before passing. Um, and it has just, you know, I've, I worked with several terminal patients in Jamaica, uh, but this kind of intimacy that we shared there just quite literally hours before he passed. And I, I, I really want to hear any kind of experiences that you might have in kind of the more abstract post exit scenarios um, because one of the things that psychedelics have absolutely opened me up to the the clear and present reality that we are not our bodies and that we exist after the body and working with this individual i'm going to not cry right now um, but to be able to to be able to say to him before he passed that I know you will still be with me. I know that we can still be in communication and I welcome your support from that side. It shifted my kind of consciousness on a daily basis in a way that I still can't really put words to. Um, but it, it kind of created this sense of the all encompassing nature of life and that there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere else, but, or there's no time else, but now, and that we can, no matter what it looks like in our physical or non-physical experience, that we can embrace this moment, this eternal moment with full joy and optimism. Uh, it's so powerful. It is. It is. And the people who work in, you know, I was mentioning before, people think it's, you know, people ask me all the time, oh, is this depressing? Is this sad? Oh. Aren't you depressed all the time? And no, no, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. This work is life affirming. Yeah. And you do start to see what could be little signs and signals all over the place. Um, you know, I... I think, you know, I hear some people say that in order to perceive what is around us all the time, you need to have like a special gift. And then I've heard other people say, oh, no, it's there for anybody to see. Anybody, but especially people over the age of four tend to forget mm -hmm. that they have the ability to notice things or to perceive things. Or maybe they talked about it as a child and they were told to hush up. Mm -hmm. um, and so they've just learned not to. I'm not, I'm not certain. I know that I have had clients where I'm very close with them. And, and when they're gone, I miss them terribly. But I do feel like it's not over, that it's just changed. It's mm -hmm. a little bit different, the relationship is. Um, but then I have other people who have come to me and who have said that they notice that there's angels all around me. 
all my clients, all these different mm-hmm. relatives, mm-hmm. friends, that there's angels and they see something. Mm-hmm. So I'll go with that. That's such a lovely, comforting <laughs> thought. Um, and sometimes I feel it and sometimes I'm distracted by just life. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that that's what happens to a lot of us. But when we can stop and remember that that love is always with us, that um, the people we have loved are all are with us, that can be uh, that can be such a and you're still going to miss them but it can be so comforting going forward and knowing that you'll serve that role too um especially at end of life about 80 percent of us will experience near-death awareness and those are visits from people mm-hmm. oftentimes we oftentimes we know them they are loved ones who have passed before us um sometimes we don't know them at all but they're there and you can tell the difference when somebody is experiencing a visit or near-death awareness it's very different from Hmm. say uh, delirium that might Mm -hmm. exist for people at end of life as well those are two very different experiences because when people are getting visits or near-death awareness they're not confused they're Hmm. not distressed they are comfortable sometimes the family freaks out because their loved one is talking to somebody they can't see or hear so Mm. it's really helpful to have a doula or somebody in the room that knows about this that can tell them it's normal it's okay Mm -hmm. um the best thing to do is stay silent look at your loved one they're fine they're mm-hmm. having a good experience. Um, and then encourage them when the person returns to the room to say, can you tell us about what just happened? Maybe learn something from mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, so that's a sort of afterlife, isn't it? Yeah. If, they, if they come back and help us when we're ready to die. Um, then And knowing that at some point, maybe we'll do that for somebody. So I, I, that provides a lot of comfort for people at the end. That's why when people say to me, you know, it's really important that my mother not die alone, I often tell them there is no evidence <laughs> that any of us die alone. Um, hmm. And so, yeah, that's something for people to know and, and yeah, be comforted by, hopefully. So wow. quick, before, if you don't mind, I want to just follow this train here, train of thought here. Um, how have you seen those type of phenomena shift materialist perspectives in the medical community? Like maybe death doulas or nurses that you've worked with who had a very materialistic, you know, life is one and done kind of perspective, broaden their perspective after these kinds of experiences. Oh yeah. I don't think anybody could be involved in death work and not recognize that it changes your ideas Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if you, I mean, there are people who work in and around dying people all the time and they were convinced there's just this one life and they Mm -hmm. still are. Um, But they're not as sure. (laughs) And they're they're actually comfortable with that doubt. And that's, Uh something I we talk all the time about in my circles is being okay with not knowing mm-hmm. being okay with the mystery being okay with not knowing mm-hmm. and so I think that that's important and so we just we t- those of us who do this work we just tend to embrace it a little bit more than others that's all we're not I don't know how you can be sure of anything <laughs> the more I learn <laughs> yes. the more uh, the, the less I know right yeah. and so um 
so yeah, so I think, but I think it changes. I think especially the medical professionals. I heard one doctor say, look, if you're afraid of death and you're um, scared of dying, the best place for you to go is medical school. And I think doctors do have that reputation for a reason. They see death as the enemy. They see it as something to fight against. Mm. Doesn't matter. Quality of life doesn't matter. You fight with everything you have for one more minute, for one more day. And they assume we all think the same thing. <laughs> Nurses, as a rule, tend to be a little bit more honest. Mm -hmm. They're seeing something a little bit different. And so when physicians really allow themselves, sometimes it's when they are affected by it personally, or maybe they've just been you know, around people with terminal illnesses for so long that their perspective does change. Um, and, but it's important to, that the rest of us really get educated so that we can go into that. And if we have a doctor who's scared of death or wants us to fight it, we just have to have a, a different kind of conversation with them. Um, oh, wow. And, Never and thought about that, yeah. Yeah, their perspectives are really um, changing in a way that I think is groundbreaking. Well, and you've probably mm -hmm. had quite a bit of resistance, I would think, from, you know, the hardline, uh, you know, physician, surgeon, who is, like you say, they want to do everything they can. That's their job to put an extra minute on your life. That's right. And we talk, you know, I talk to clients all the time and it's important to go in there and ask certain questions, but doctors are coming, like, let's assume everybody's coming from a good place. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, um, a doctor will not be as honest about, um, a not necessarily a diagnosis, but how that diagnosis is going to go. Um, they're not as honest because some they'll lose some patients who, if they they just some patients just want to hear what they want to hear, and that's that they're not going to die. And if you're honest with some patients they might leave and go find another doctor. So they have a very real concern that they're going to lose patients by telling them, mm. you know, kind of the hard truth about death. Mm. They also, like I said, they see it as uh, like something to fight against. Um, no hospital wants these statistics on, on record. So they're trying to scoop patients out and go back home rather than have it on the record that they lost a patient or that a patient died on their watch. Mm. Um, there, there are a lot of different reasons why doctors just really are hesitant to be as honest as say a mm. nurse would be. Um, but you can ask specific questions to the doctor and let them know kind of where you're coming from. And then maybe, maybe they can start to view it in a different way. One of the things I always tell clients to ask is, if this was your mom, what would you recommend? Um, if I was your mom, if I was your daughter, what would you recommend? That sometimes gets them mm. to look at things a little bit differently. Mm. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, I'm gonna let you go because I'll I'll hog this conversation right now. There's so many. <laughs> so go ahead. I'm sure you've got questions. I do have a lot of questions. I mean, um, it's a little bit of a transition from that topic, uh, which, yeah, could be explored so much more. But um, one of my main questions is around coming back to community mm -hmm. and communities supporting 
community members in in death and death of loved ones as people who are really getting started a new kind of community. This is something that we're talking a lot about as we have members who we've had a couple of members in the last few weeks who have lost their parents. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of which, you know, is a little bit unexpected um, for her. And yeah. And being that I, I personally don't have any tradition around death and transition uh, growing up, this is just a whole new territory for me. So I guess my question for you is, what is your idea, like in this uh, initial period after someone loses someone that's really close with them, and particularly when it's unexpected, um, how would you suggest like people in a community support that person uh, that's lost a loved one. Yeah. I think there are a variety of ways to do that. I think it really helps to, to check in with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think sometimes we're uncomfortable with silence and I'm hoping that the more we talk about this and the I feel like it's something I go over with clients and students every single day. It's just being okay with showing up for somebody and then sitting and being silent. Um, That is so much better Mm. than showing up and rambling on and on, telling them, you know, interrupting, bringing it back to you, telling you, telling them you understand, or, you know, or one of these awful sayings, like God only gives us what we can handle or, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) would so-and-so want you to be sad? Um, There's so many things like people get so scared. They're going to say something wrong that Mm -hmm. they don't want to say anything at all and they don't show up. And so there's a happy medium, right? We have to find a way where Mm -hmm. people can just be with somebody and not not necessarily have to say anything. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes um, reaching out to the loved one, reaching out and saying, how can I help? And then not Mm -hmm. being attached to the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, That person might say nothing right now. Mm -hmm. That person might say, pray for me. That person might say, I could use like some help with you know, writing thank you notes. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever the answer is, just show up for them in that way. If mm-hmm. you think that the person isn't doesn't want to be a burden, um, you can say, "How about I come over tomorrow and I bring a meal?" Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, not being attached to the answer is really really important. Uh, I also think you know, especially in the few weeks after somebody dies. There's a lot of family around, usually a mm-hmm. lot of loved ones around. And then after that, it's it becomes very lonely and mm-hmm. sad. The person is still grieving, mm-hmm. but they don't get as many phone calls. They don't get as many people checking in. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important over the long haul to keep checking in, mm-hmm. um, to let that person know that you're available to listen anytime. And then actually following through with that. When they call mm-hmm. you, just listen. Just mm-hmm. provide a place for them to unload and vent and cry and mourn and let them do that and not offer any kind of statements to try to fix it. Just give them a hug. 
hold their hand and be okay Mm -hmm. with that silence. While somebody is working through grief, whether it's anticipatory grief for the dying person, because they're grieving, or it's after somebody has died and people are grieving. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work happening in silence, a lot Mm -hmm. of reflection, a lot of healing, lots of resolving going on. So just because it seems like nothing's happening in the room because it's so quiet, Mm. The exact opposite is happening. So we just have to be okay with it. Sit and hold their hand and relax. And so that's what I end up hopefully helping clients and loved ones do is just being okay with that silence that you're still helping. Mm. Mm. It is, it's, yeah. so, it's so much like trip sitting. You know, it, it's it so is. much like the fundamentals. 100%. Yep. Uh, so can you can you talk a little bit about the trainings you've been doing? I know uh, you've been working with uh, 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 Diasporic Psychedelic Society, Omar, who's uh, been a friend of mine for a while, and some other organizations. And we're talking about what maybe we could bring to Sanctuary through your work. But I'd love to hear your have you share with our audience kind of what you've already been doing within psychedelic communities directly. Yeah. So psychedelic communities are like any other communities, except they're they're hopefully usually they're a little bit more aware. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> a little bit more aware. Okay. A little bit, you know, they're, 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 they are they're not afraid of death. They're not eager for it either. Mm. And so, um, so I have been doing trainings on a variety of different subjects. Sometimes I'll have people who call me at, from these different groups and they'll say, let's do a workshop on voluntarily stopping all eating and drinking. It's the only legal option we have to hasten death. Mm-hmm. What, how, what is it? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. How can oh, we do wow. it? Um, we also talk about ways to reduce fears in our family members, our loved ones, who maybe are more fearful than we are. Um, and they're not going to um, take any kind of plant medicine. They're not going to do anything like that. So how can we help them reduce their fears? Mm -hmm. So we have workshops on that as well. What does it mean? Um, There's very practical workshops I do. What does it mean to get your affairs in order? What does that even look like? I'm overwhelmed. And so we kind of go through this checklist for the dying that we go through that. Um, But then for other groups that are already really in tune with psychedelics. They understand the plant medicine and they understand what it's like to be a trip sitter too. They want to move that forward and really do death doula work. So I do a whole training, uh, an eight week training program for those groups that help people learn about end of life work, what that means and how we can be there for people who maybe aren't as aware or as uh, fearless as we are, but we can still be there for them um, and what that looks like for all different kinds of faith. Back, what are the grief rituals? What are faith rituals that we can all take advantage of without appropriating anything? We can take these in. We can really be, they can really work for us no matter our cultural or religious background. So there's so many topics that I think the end of life doula classes that I've been doing really help people who not only want to maybe open a practice like I've done, but they just want to be there for their family members and friends. Mm -hmm. They recognize that this is one of the only, I mean, this in birth, the only universal experiences we have, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so wouldn't it be great if it was good? 
wouldn't it be great if it was joyful? And how can we get there? Yeah. And so they want to be a voice for that in their community, wherever that is. And so we have like all these classes that are designed really to normalize that conversation, get people to where they can go back to their communities and get others to start talking about it. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of know that we're, we're planting seeds all over the place, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So important. So important. Yeah. It's just like, I think sex and death are the two topics that are the most relevant that get the least attention. Right. Right. And we've, unfortunately, we've, we've become so used to different organizations, groups, churches, religions, whatever it might be, that kind of um, focus around unhealthy attachments Mm-hmm. unhealthy ideas they sort of made that the sacrament and anything that deviates from that is a sin and that leaves people just confused um mm-hmm. frightened heartbroken ashamed mm-hmm. um and we can talk about shame and we can talk about all these things and get people to where they recognize that they're human and that and that we're all kind of going through this and there's a better way there's a better way to live and a better way to die. And all we need, you know, is sometimes that awareness and those conversations to get it started. Yeah, so important. And that's, you know, it's a big impetus behind us starting this podcast is because we feel like there is such a need to incorporate these topics into the psychedelic conversation, right? Like psychedelics are, in and of themselves are great. But when they are applied to intentionally building a better life or creating a better, ex, you know, experience, like you said, even with with death, like that's where they really become valuable. There, it's it's not helpful if we have these experiences and we don't talk about them. We've, right. we've got we've got to bring it to bring it out. So um, we definitely do. <clears throat> you know, people don't realize that fear of death ruins life. And that if we can actually get past our fear and anxiety, we won't be as easily manipulated by mm. churches, politicians, mm-hmm. um, pundits, mm-hmm. um, because we'll kind of understand uh, on a visceral level that there is nothing to fear and that we are love is all that matters. Mm. And, you know, how great would that be? <laughs> for, yeah. for It would be, I mean, a lot of people would go out of business. A lot of bad guys would go out of business. <laughs> um, but I think that there, it, would, it has a, a flavor of revolutionary to it. And mm. I think it's important. And so, yeah, so let's get out there and have those conversations. And the work you do and the work that I do, we can we can help people understand it on a level that they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm, I love that. Have you heard of Byron Katie and her work around, she's got this worksheet called the judge your neighbor worksheet. And essentially what it is, is working through um, layers of beliefs until you get to like around a certain challenge you're having in your life and asking questions. Is it true? is it true? And answering yes or no, and then asking another question around that until you get to the root, the very root of the fear, the challenge that you're experiencing over and over. And this is something I was doing a lot many years ago. Um, And almost every single time at the root of 
every single problem that I work through was I'm afraid I'm going to die mm. and I'm mm. going to be alone and I'm going to die alone. And that was like at the root of things that I thought were just very surface level things around money, uh, mm. things around um, appearance, like just not being, um, at the end of the day, if I don't do this, if I don't get this thing, if I don't prove to the society that I'm in that I'm this, then I'm going to die alone. <laughs> and yeah. so like really this conversation around death, it's, it's just within so many things in our lives. It is. It's oh my gosh. And, yeah. and now after this, you're going to see it even more places. Like think about the movies that we watch. Think about mm -hmm. the music, the artwork. Um, there are some good things that come from this fear or, you know, because people are trying to work it out. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I see it, especially in movies. It all seems to be around fear of death. Somebody's died. Somebody's trying not to die. There's a funeral. Um, yeah. They're dealing with loss or grief in some way. They're not encouraged to talk about it. So they've poured it into their art. Um, and that I feel like is everywhere. Every movie now that I see, I look at my husband and I say, look, that it's fear of death mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, and really, so, you know, I'm glad people are working through it with art at the same time. I really hope that people cannot just maybe question these ideas, but come to some kind of truth within themselves. Mm. That would be really great so that yep. they're not suffering anymore. Well, mm -hmm. and what you said about control hit me so hard, um, you know, because on, I mean, what comes to my mind immediately is the political attempts to control society and, you know, create outcomes. Religion obviously has a big, big role to play in perpetuating this fear and using this fear of death as a means of control. But, you know, lately, and I think it's after working with Welby, the gentleman who just passed, um, Welby Winstead, salute you, my friend, um, that I have been able to experientially, not just conceptually, but experientially engage with my eternal self in a way that I've not been able to do. I mean, I've, I've had glimpses of it with psychedelics, but there was something about that experience and then like feeling Welby's spirit afterwards that has just solidified my knowing that I am eternal and the ability for that to dissolve fear around so many things. And I still go through waves. I went through a wave of like two weeks ago of like this whole war, World War Three, and all this fear that is being put in our face. And I kind of came to the conclusion, like after I got through that, it's just like you can drop all the fucking bombs you want. I'm not going anywhere. None of us are going anywhere. And we're going to stay in this game until we figure till everybody figures it out that it's eternal and that love is the only sustainable investment that we can 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 you know put ourselves into and and yeah. so like to help more and more people really understand that eternal self like what could what could bring about a greater shift globally socially in, right. in coming closer to creating a heaven on earth. Yeah. 
And wouldn't that be great? I mean, it really, when I stop and I think about people who are really just even distracting themselves, um, on a, I'm talking about like national, international personalities um, who really are not focused on anything that, that's real, anything that's going to last. Mm. I often find myself thinking if more people could be with loved ones or even strangers while they're dying, they would recognize before it's too late. Mm -hmm. um, the, the people who are at end of life typically are concerned with saying, I love you, I forgive you, please forgive me, and goodbye. And that those messages you do not have, to, with the exception of the goodbye part, you don't have to be dying to make meaningful amends. Oh you my gosh. You don't have to be dying to tell people you love them, that they matter. Um, and if more people could do that, they would, that's what makes them happy. You know, there's all these studies that show that all that money, all that glory, all that fame, all that property, all that gold, it does not lead to sustained happiness. Mm -hmm. It does not lead to meaningful lives. But the I love yous, the I forgive yous, the please forgive me, those do. And so if we could, you know, I see these people and I just think, you know, they're going to, they're going to learn at some point. And what a bunch of wasted time. <laughs> do it now. Just, it would be better for them. It would be better for their loved ones. It would be better for us. So we're just going to have to keep spreading the word um, and doing what we can do. And, and hopefully more people will understand this journey before the end. Yes. Mm -hmm. Amen. Oh, wow. It's an interesting game we're playing here in this earth realm. <laughs> I'm eternal. No, I'm not. I'm eternal. No, I'm not. Ah. Right. And you just kind of let those feelings go in and go out and understand that, you know, we're learning what it is we're supposed to learn. And I think you're right. End of life is a lot. Being doula work is a lot like trip sitting um, because you are there for harm reduction. You are there to support. We are all mm -hmm. just walking each other home. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a, a lot when people, even when people get those visits, you know, um, if they do get, you know, somebody visiting them and it scares them a little, what, what do we say when somebody's having a bad trip, you know, ahead of time, turn around and face it. Don't run. Mm -hmm. Turn around and face and say, what do you have to teach me? Mm -hmm. And if we could all kind of look at all of this with the same kind of awe-inspiring curiosity and open-mindedness, yes. mm -hmm. then we would um, we would suffer a whole lot less. Mm -hmm. So we'll just have to keep continuing to do this. Well, that, the power of silence that you brought up is one of mm -hmm. the things that I have learned so much in trip sitting, and that that in the silence is where so much productive, powerful work is happening, and to just. Yes be there and witness that and be just be a a solid presence for that i don't know i just i can't if i could tell you know i'm sure that this is another similarity you know just coming out of these experiences and feeling like like i'm the fortunate one here you all just paid me for this work that i performed you know you just paid me for this service but that 
money that was paid does not come anywhere close to the reward that that is doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. We learn a lot. I feel like this is the next kind of evolution of my, my psychedelic work um, mm -hmm. for so many reasons, but I just feel really, really called. I don't know. I don't know to think about what, what could be more powerful, you know, like I've had this experience a few times with, with mushrooms, not just with myself, but in working with people and that, um, that the work with, with psilocybin and other plant medicines, and we don't really have a great concept for this. And I think our understanding of the word of karma is very um, uh, misconstrued as to its origin, but it feels very much to me that psychedelics can go a long way at kind of cleaning out that, you know, that garbage or whatever it is, whatever the sticky stuff that's in the way that we're going to carry with us energetically after this physical life. And so if, yeah, I don't know how to really how to expand on that or if there's not really need to, but just the, the power of psychedelics to like, mm, get us closer to heaven or like, I mean, I'm, I don't have this idea of heaven as the place of angel rainbows and angels Heaven for me is that place of peace, that place of knowing within the self. Uh, so it's just so powerful to combine the two. What, how, how much, or to what extent, if you're able to talk about it, have you um, actively been able to incorporate psychedelics into the the clients that you've worked with? So so far, it has been clients who are working with therapists. And they are just interested in somebody sitting with them for six to eight hours and mm -hmm. making sure that they're safe. Maybe um, providing water if it's needed, maybe a walk to the bathroom if, mm -hmm. if needed. Mm -hmm. And that has been it so far. Is that um, a significant percentage, though? I mean, what would you say right now? Like the, and, you know, to the extent that you're comfortable talking with it. Yeah, I mean, so in Florida, I was there for so long that there was a level of trust built up. There was a community there. Um, so it looks a little bit different in Chicago because I've only been here seven months now. Um, but the more I talk with people and the more I just say, you know, look, I'm here. I'm here and it's a service that's available um, and I operate on a sliding scale. So I make sure I won't turn anyone away. Um, we all deserve good trips, good deaths. And so I am there simply in the name of harm reduction um, for psychedelic use. And I think it's going to take a minute here for therapists to trust me. And that's okay. I'm not going anywhere. So I'm just continuing to build those relationships. And, you know, obviously I can always go back to Tampa and help out uh, support in whatever way I need to. Um, but I think the interest is there. Mm -hmm. And so I think more and more people, I think it's going to grow. I think it's going to grow. Didn't Illinois just propose a legalization bill or a decrim? Yeah, I I think so. And I think it's getting closer and closer. I think that and and medical aid and dying laws. I think there's a, there are a lot of people who this generation. So the generation that is becoming um, 65, mm -hmm. you know, for the next 
couple of decades, it's going to grow. I think it was like 28 million in 2018, and it's going to grow to 90 million by 2060. And these are people who uh, they run their lives a certain kind of way. And they are used to planning. They plan their families. They plan their education. Mm-hmm. They plan their retirement. Mm-hmm. So it it stands to reason that they're going to plan their deaths. Mm-hmm. And they are starting to look at, not even starting, they are part of the reason why people are living more authentic lives. Um, people are loving who they want to love. They are living the way they want to live. Mm-hmm. And they want those rights to continue. And they're seeing cannabis in different ways. They're recognizing psychedelics and plant medicine um, is not the same as uh, as other drugs that they've been led to believe. And so they are taking more ownership. And I think they're going to take more ownership of medical aid and dying. I think more states are going to pass those laws and they're going to improve upon the laws that are already legal to include more people. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see more and more um, people wanting autonomy at the end, just like they've had their whole lives. Mm-hmm. They will not be denied mm-hmm. it. And so I think it's going to be really exciting yeah. um, mm-hmm. that more and more people are going to choose uh, ways that work better for them. And, and lead to a more positive experience all the way around. Mm. So you're not speaking directly to it, but I want to ask directly about your thoughts on um, what I only know as assisted suicide. There's got to be a better term for it. Uh, but, you know, I grew up Catholic, of course, staunchly against anything like that. My perspective has drastically changed seeing how we yeah. drag the lives out of people who are, you know, they can't feed themselves. Yeah. They can't go to the bathroom. What, what's your perspective on that? Uh, I, I assume that I have a pretty good idea, but beyond that, how do we change public perception? Yeah. So I think, you know, personally, I'm pro-choice across the board. Um, and so I always have been. I suspect I always will be. <laughs> and so I, if somebody talks to me about their fears at end of life, like, you know what, I'm just going to take this cocktail of pills because I'm scared of what's going to happen. Well, let's have a conversation about Mm -hmm. that. Let's talk about physical suffering because it's not necessary at end of life. If you get hospice and palliative care on board early, they're going to get to know you. They're going to get on top of it and you will not suffer physically Mm -hmm. at the end of life. Are you, if somebody is afraid of, you know, I don't want to be crass, but it's the pooping and the peeing that get people worked Mm -hmm, on. mm -hmm. There's an awful lot of shame Mm -hmm. associated with wearing adult diapers, Mm -hmm. for example. And so let's talk about that. And really shameful. I mean, there's some things that we should be ashamed of, right? Cruelty, inhumanity Mm -hmm. to man. But pooping and peeing is not shameful by themselves. So if we can work through that and get past it and understand that we are all in this work at end of life because we feel like it's an honor mm-hmm. and that we will be in that place one day, pooping mm-hmm. and peeing, and mm-hmm. the people working on it do not care. It's mm-hmm. not a source for shame. There's plenty that's a source for shame. Let's not start adding to that. Right. But if somebody really, for whatever reason, it's their own personal reason, want to hasten death, let's talk about that too. Like I said, there's voluntarily stopping all eating and drinking, which is a painless, comfortable way to die. So really? let's discuss it. So is. Hmm. And that's why one of my workshops, my one of my 
favorite workshops is helping people understand that, that it mm. is pain, it's painless and comfortable. So really? we talk about that. Wow. But then there's medical aid in dying, where if some people can get in certain states can get two doctors to say that they are going to die within six months and they can physically take those pills themselves, mm-hmm. then they can hasten death in certain circumstances. And so lots of states want to pass that. But what about the folks who have dementia? What about the folks who mm-hmm. have Alzheimer's? Mm-hmm. They are not, when they are, when they get to six months before <clears throat> death, they will not have the right of mind that the law requires, and they cannot take pills by themselves. So Mm -hmm. those options aren't available to them. So Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, if somebody has 10 grand and they want to fly to Switzerland, they can have, or other places, but mostly it's Switzerland, Mm -hmm. um, there is an extensive process that goes on, Mm -hmm. but they can have what would be uh, assisted dying from a physician with an IV, very peaceful, comfortable, loving way to go. Um, Do I think that that's going to be legal? I hope so. I hope so. I think religious lobbyists and those who are interested in controlling other people are going to always find ways um, to keep people from living the lives and dying the kinds of deaths that they want. But Mm -hmm. I think more and more you're you're having generations of people who are not going to be told they can't. Mm-hmm. When it comes to when it comes to their bodies and their lives, mm-hmm. so I think that that's going to be um, the same with their deaths too. So it'll be interesting to see how these different laws change and and grow. Um, but we do have options available to us right now. So we just have to be more comfortable asking questions and learning about them. Mm. Wow! For people who are just now starting to. Uh, become interested in talking about death and the whole process of it, even just really starting to allow themselves to think about death. What would you recommend as like a starting resource or um, even like a workshop or just like an introduction to let's talk about death? Yeah. So if different groups, like three or more people, want me to host any kind of online webinar talk, like again, sliding scale, I will not turn anybody away. I think that's a great way to get started and just to have a conversation. Um, Locally in Chicago, I host tender talks all the time. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, married into a Jewish family. I am so okay with uncomfortable conversations. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm actually pretty good at them. I've had lots of practice. So, um, so I host the, you know, if a family wants to get together, but they're not sure, they think maybe they need professional kind of mediation. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm happy to do that. So I have I host tender talks all the time. I also have workshops going on all the time. But if somebody can get to a library and get Katie Butler's book, The Practical Guide um, to End of Life, I think mm. that helps people start when they're in their 40s and 50s. Mm. And there are specific things we can do every single decade along the way to make our Expected deaths, which is what a lot of us are going to have, expected deaths in our 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, those can be much better 
with little things we do, um, mm. starting in our 40s and 50s. So mm. I highly recommend Katie Butler. Her books are fantastic and they're practical. They're going to help, like specifically, they're going to help give people specific ideas about mm. what they can do. Um, and you feel good when you're doing them. These are really, we always go into these things. I have so many families, so many clients and, and, and students who all say the same thing. Boy, I was not looking forward to this. I kept putting this off. I didn't want to participate. This wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. This was fun. We actually laughed. I actually feel better about life now because mm -hmm. I don't have this dark cloud hanging over me. I finally did my advanced directives and my family, you know, knows what I want at the end of life. So I'm mm -hmm. no longer worried about anything. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many ways to get through this. And I think you're right. I think it's community and I think we should do it together. Mm. Mm. And yeah. in that, what it's really all about is creating a better life, having, having the preparedness, the conversations, just so that we can more fully enjoy right now. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Wow, this is wonderful. This is really wonderful work that you're doing. Uh, Thank I'm you. I'm so grateful that this is out there, and I want to be a part mm -hmm. of it. I definitely want to be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, so what's psilocybin say to you, Catherine? We're going to have to hop off here. Uh, <laughs> what does psilocybin <laughs> say to me? Um, you know this. You know it. Mm. Oh, I you know love it. that. You know this. Oh, God. That's good. <laughs> yeah. How many times <laughs> you already know this? Come on. Oh, wow. You know this. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on our show, yeah. Catherine. Uh, looking forward to further conversations and, and hopefully integrating you and your work into our community as well. Just really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, yeah likewise. I'm, lo I'm looking forward to working with both of you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs>